So I want you guys to imagine that you are in a storm. You're out taking a hike in the woods and all of a sudden the wind begins to pick up and the dark clouds begin to roll in and it begins to pour rain upon you as the wind is blowing the trees mildly around you. Twigs and branches are snapping off in all directions and you're soaking wet. And then the lightning begins to crash and you're terrified because you can't find shelter. And the trees aren't going to be of help to you because of the thunder and lightning. You don't want to be under the biggest tree right now. And all you can do is worry. You're in the midst of it. It's pounding upon you. And you're soaking wet. Imagine that same exact storm. But this time, you are sitting in your favorite chair. Inside the living room of your house. The fire is crackling. You've got your favorite cup of coffee or tea in your lap and it's warming you. And you look out the window and you see the trees dancing to the violent rhythm. You see the water pounding upon your windows and streaking down. And you take a nice big sip and look at the fire in your fireplace and think, "Ah, I'm glad I get to watch it. Very different experiences about the exact same storm. Which would you rather be in? This is what we have the opportunity to live. We often feel the storm that comes. But God wants us to watch the storm when it comes. He wants to shelter us in the storm so that we get to Enjoy the snow as it comes down rather than shoveling it. Sounds good, doesn't it? Oh, those were the days when you just got to watch it and had no worries. But yeah. <laughs> Back when uh, you got to have snow days, those are fun. Okay. Psalm 3. Notice the title of this psalm. It says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. We'll talk about that. Verse 1. Oh, Yahweh, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, oh, Yahweh, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for Yahweh sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Psalm 3 hits the ground running. From the very beginning of this title, 
of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. The psalm is when David was literally on the run. And this psalm hits the ground running because it takes us right into life very rudely and says, Oh, look, many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, not a chance. Even if God intervened, there's not a chance for you. Woo! This is life, isn't it? And this is how it is. You don't always get to wake up choosing how your day is going to be. You don't always get to wake up with the day saying, I'll wait till you're ready because I'm patient and understanding of your limitations. <laughs> right. Life hits us whether we're ready or not. And sometimes we hit the ground absolutely on the run. And all we feel like we're doing is playing catch up. We're reacting. We're trying to orient ourselves to what's going on. And what's really interesting is, as we said, Psalm 1 and 2 are the introductions to the rest of the 148 Psalms. And so this is our first proper Psalm. The first proper, after the introductions, we see what happens. So, imagine again. Psalm 1 said, okay, the peaceful garden of God, where you're meditating on Him and His scripture, and you're like that fruitful Edenic tree planted by the flowing living streams of water and your leaf doesn't wither and everything that you do, it prospers. And like, ah, the garden of God. Chapter two, look at those idiot nations who are plotting, meditating on vanity. They have empty vain uh, strategies of trying to circumvent God and overcome him. And, and then God says, ha, 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 but I've got my king. And then we see the king in the Psalm chapter two says, adore this king, kiss this king and focus on him because he wins. And we're like, yes, the peaceful garden of Psalm one, the triumphant victory of Psalm two. And we're feeling really good about ourselves. And then Psalm three hits us just like life. And all of a sudden, what? Why God? Why are there so many around me? And suddenly we're, we were in the peaceful garden. Now we're on the run. We were celebrating a triumphant king and now we're saying, where are you? Why are they plotting against me? What did I ever do to deserve this? Psalm three hits the ground running because life hits the ground running. We don't always get to live in Psalm one and two. I want you to notice also um, the title. This is our first psalm with the title, okay? We talked about those a little while ago, but we'll talk about it now. It says, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's not your Bible's editor putting that in there for clarification. Uh, my Bible actually says, save me, O my Lord. That's the editor saying, this psalm's about save me, O my Lord. <laughs> but the, when he fled from Absalom, his son, that's actually scripture, that's been in the Bible, in the Psalms, as far as we have records of. So, the, when it, the Jews would pray this, they understood. The context of this Psalm was when David was in such a place, he was on the run. Now, here's, here's the story going on here. Um, well, let, wait, let's stop there. This is a story. This is a story. David's on the run. That's a story. And what this third Psalm, tells us is that all prayer happens in the context of story. All prayer is prayed in the very middle of something going on. Again, prayer isn't something that, okay, I will start praying and now the adventure will begin. No, prayer is birthed in the midst of the adventure. When the plot thickens is precisely when we learn how to pray. 
We can talk about meditating on scripture. We can talk about adoring the king all we want. But until you're on the run, until you're in the midst of your story, when it's at its darkest point, when you are at the desperate edge of life, that's when prayer begins. And you don't need to be taught how to pray in those moments. You pray. And sometimes it's ugly. Sometimes you say things you didn't mean to say. Your prayers aren't always spiritual at these times. And sidebar here, if you'll notice, nor was this prayer. Verse 7, strike my enemies on the cheek, break their teeth. It's a great godly prayer, isn't it? David's on the run. We're on the run. Prayer is in the context, in the middle of a story. Stories are interesting because they're happening. And you don't, usually the central character of a story, you, don't get to control what's happening. That's the problem with stories. They come at us. Prayer is our ability. It's the one thing we can control. It's our ability to respond. The story throws external problems, but prayer says, here's your internal solution. I'm getting peppered with acorns. You have, you have an ant, you have something you can do in the story. So you can't control the outside events, but you can control the inside. And that's where the prayer comes in. And when you pray, it lets you inside God's story that's going on in your life. Otherwise, what happens is if all we live is, oh no, the bad guys are after me or the problems are surrounding me, many, 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 verses one and two, it's all around me, then you're just going to live on the run. And when you're on the run, you're always out of breath, you're never centered, and you're always on the desperate edge of life, trying to outrun whatever's chasing you. But when you pray and you find prayer in the midst of your story, you're able to put the story on pause for a moment. You're able to enter into a shelter and take a look at what's happening around you from another context. In other words, you're no longer reacting and trying to catch up and trying to figure out who are the bad guys and what's going on. You get to respond and see everything from God's point of view. Prayer happens in story. So there are 13 psalms that give us a specific story context. This is the first one. The others come, um, Psalm, if you are quick to jot down and want to, the other 12 are Psalm 7, Psalm 18, Psalm 34, so 7, 18, 34, 51, 52, 54, 56, 57, 59, 60, 63, and 142. Now, when you take the time to go look those up, here's what you'll find. They all sound something like this. Psalm 7, of David, which he sang to Yahweh concerning the words of Cush of Benjamite. Not the best example. Let's do 18. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of Yahweh, who addressed the words of this song to Yahweh on the day when Yahweh rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Hmm. From the hand of Saul. Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away. 
<laughs> so we've seen Cush the Benjamite. Apparently it was an enemy. He's been, he was in the grasp of Saul. And then there's a time when he's before Abimelech and he changed his behavior. You might remember he began to drool on his beard so that he would think, oh, this isn't the mighty David that we should capture for a ransom. This is some drooling, dribbling idiot. Get rid of him. What you will see when you look at all the other titles, the story psalms, every single one of them is a story of trouble. So when the psalms put us in the midst of a story, it's always in the car chase. It's always when the police are arriving at the heist, at the bank. It's always when the pressure is on. And that's where we hit the ground running with Psalm 3. Because we must learn how to pray when we're on the run. So what was David on the run from? What was going on with David? Back to our title, it says, When he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, some of us can imagine some scary childhoods where the children are actually chasing the parents around the house and the parents are on the run from their children. But this is not that. David's a full-grown man. He is the king of Israel. Absalom, his son, was a charismatic, handsome fella who had long hair that weighed five pounds. Absalom was attractive. He was gorgeous. All the boys had man crushes on him, as well as the girls who wanted to marry him. Absalom was the future king. And one of my favorite Bible teachers believes that Absalom was David's first choice to be king. He had it to Solomon because it didn't work out. But Absalom was the chosen one. Well, Absalom sort of let it get to his head a bit. And uh, he murdered somebody because of a rape case that David didn't actually take care of. And so Absalom was exiled from the kingdom. And then Absalom was welcomed back. And what happened when Absalom came back? Oh, wow. Well, if you want to see some of this, it's 2 Samuel. Jot it down in your Bible next time you're reading Psalm 3. 2 Samuel 15. 2 Samuel 15. So you have uh, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. And if you find kings, keep going left. 2 Samuel 15. So Absalom has returned. And watch this. It says, after this, uh, 15.1, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. So in a way, that's... um. People that are motorheads brag about horsepower. That's sort of what's going on here. Absalom has his grand chariot, and he doesn't just have horses carrying it. He has humans carrying it. It's quite a sight. So this is drawing attention. Verse 2. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. The gate was where all the traffic of the city was. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment... Absalom would call to him and say, wait, 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 come here. See that? When you come to the gate, you're to get judgment from the king. Absalom's standing in for David right now. And he says, hey, from what city are you? He's a very personal fella. You can see the charisma of Absalom. He wants to get to know everybody in the kingdom. And he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Huh. 
sowing seeds of doubt about David. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Oh, man, Absalom is taking cheap shots at his father. This is ancient Twitter right here. That's what's happening. Absalom is letting everyone know what a better presidential candidate he would be. And when, verse 5, a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Man, he made everyone feel special. Verse 6, thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And you go down to verse 12. The last part of verse 12 says, The conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. The, now do you see David's prayer? How many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many say of me there is no salvation for him in God. Absalom is raising up the many all around David. Now verse um, 13, a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of all the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise, strap your armor on, get your swords and your spears and get all my best warriors and take his head off. And I want the hair on my mantle, all five pounds of it. Nope, actually he didn't say that. That's what you would have thought, right? Sounded natural enough, kind of how I would have written the story. But in light of the cross of Christ, in light of the radical message of the Bible, the story goes completely different. David says, arise and let us flee. What? Wait, what, David? You're the king. Like, you have every right to keep your throne. David says, let us flee. Or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. I don't know if that's true. Has David ever lost a battle? Was there ever a giant David couldn't kill? Frankly, I think that David just could not kill, come to kill his son. That's what he's saying. And it will bring ruin down on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David doesn't want the city he's sworn to protect to come to blows. Let Absalom have it if that's what it takes. And so... In verse 25, we'll go forward. Um, verse, let's do verse 24. And Abiathar came up. So this is, they're leaving Israel, or they're leaving Jerusalem. They're in exile. The king is taking his court out into the wilderness. This is the walk of shame. I don't care how culture uses that language, what that means in culture, but this is true walk of shame. He is leaving the kingdom. And so Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, so this is a priest, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king, David, said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of Yahweh, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. What? That is so cool, David. He recognizes that, lo, the ark of God belongs in the temple in the city. Leave it there. Take it back. 
Because if God wants me back in the city as king, I will see it again. We don't have to take everything with us. Let Absalom have everything as it is. God has this in his hands. How does David have this kind of perspective? How does David have this kind of perspective in the midst of the storm? Because he knows where his shelter lies. And he's prayed. He's prayed about this. You don't come to these decisions naturally on the run. It's fight or flight. But prayer teaches us a third option. And David takes it. That's a little bit of the backstory. Now, it ends very poorly for Absalom. He ends up killing himself, in a sense, because he's trying to kill David, his father. And David ends up coming back on the throne. He mourns the loss of his son. But this is the context in this little title here, when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's what's going on. David is on the run and he's humiliated. So, O Yahweh, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. When we come to these moments, we recognize now that prayer is not always praise. We want to be known for the language of prayer and praise, sure. But just as often as praise is pain, prayer and pain is all over the Psalms. But the reason I don't summarize the language of the Psalms as prayer and pain and praise, that is a mouthful, yes, but also because every time you see pain in the Psalms, it turns into praise because of the prayer that occurs in the midst of it. And so the Psalms can be summarized as prayer and praise, but that's not to say there isn't pain. Because, quite frankly, there are as many Psalms of pain as there are of praise. And here we have a Psalm of pain. But the Psalms of pain present a unique opportunity for us. They're, 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 they're the Psalms, they're the prayers that happen when you're off balance, if you will. Um, Walter Brueggemann is one of the leading Old Testament guys who writes a lot of great books, and he says that the Psalms and life move in this movement. It starts with, um, secure orientation. Life makes sense. It's great. It's happy. Secure orientation. Then at some point, life moves into painful disorientation. Psalm 3, painful disorientation. And you get knocked off balance a little bit. Your equilibrium goes and you're dislocated and you're clinging to the desperate edge of life saying, why, what is this? But then at some point, and this is what's unique about the Psalms, because through prayer, at some point, the prayer then gets a surprising reorientation. Secure orientation, painful disorientation, But then out of nowhere, the surprising reorientation. And we see that. I lay down and slept. I woke, this is verse five. I lay down and slept. I woke again for Yahweh sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. The pain has become praise. 
And then the last verse, of course, salvation belongs to Yahweh, your blessing be on your people. But there's that hideous verse 7. Arise, O Lord, and smash them. Rip them limb from limb. I'm, I'm ad-libbing here a little bit. But you can see, just in these few words, what is in the heart? What's he feeling? Was David a human? Yeah. Just because David made good decisions about this fleeing from Absalom doesn't mean he didn't feel ridiculously horrible sinful thoughts or feelings. But see, prayer helps to reorient us. See, these prayers come about when you get knocked off balance. And so here's what I was thinking about. When you have those moments of imbalance, when suddenly like you're in secure orientation and all of a sudden you're in painful disorientation and someone's losing their balance or they're slipping or their car is going out of control, you're skidding on the ice. You know what happens in those moments, right? Your thought processes are, you're not choosing words at that moment, at least in your thought process. Some people are really self-controlled and can choose their words. But I know many people who I was... I would never say they they would curse. No, I would never think that about some people. But then all of a sudden, in a moment of imbalance, really, I didn't know you were human. Stubbing the toe. I don't care if you scream applesauce. We know what you mean. <laughs> Moments of imbalance produce what is packed in the soul. And it's just a desperate, childlike uncomprehended, unmasked, (laughs) unmasked, that's great, unmasked cry to God. It's not this, I'm going to be very Christian when I pray. It's just, God help! And God smash him! It's that kind of prayer. Jeannie, yeah, I know you. I know you're there. (laughs) Now, that's not to say that it's totally okay for us to go around to our neighbors and say, I really want God to smash your head inside out. It's not okay. Here's why it is okay here. This is prayer. This is not conversation with your neighbor. This is prayer. And the people who can be at peace with the Absaloms who are chasing them are the people who have vented the frustration with God. It's not that some people are just, oh, you're superhuman. How do you never get mad? How are you never flustered with people that are annoying? It's not because they're just so great. It's because they have learned to deal with the frustration in prayer so that they can be like God before the other people. That's what's going on. So yeah, there will be pain because you're on the run. You're David. You're imbalanced. You're, um, you're finding in prayer your center. When we get knocked off balance, prayer re-centers us. We often live on the extreme boundaries of our lives. We do as a culture. We're not actually comfortable people seeing us as we are. So we like to push out and project the circumference, not our center. People don't get to see our center. Very few people get to see that. We push to the circumference of our being, an image, an identity, a sense of importance or affluence or appearance or accomplishment. We have to prove or validate ourselves. That's what we're pushing out for people to see. And the more we do that, 
the more you're living on the edges of your life. And the more you live on the edges of your life, the more susceptible life is to wobbling and to getting imbalanced. Edges erode. If you stand on a cliff edge long enough, if you make a habit of walking that line long enough, the edge will give way. The cookie crumbles, you know where? On the edges. It will give way. And soon, instead of living on the edge of life, you will find yourself clinging desperately, danging, dangling from the edge of your life. And that's where we see our psalmist experiencing it right now. At the desperate edge of life. So the more, see, see this is how this works. The more I pride myself in uh, being a good listener... And I project, that's who I am, that's what I am. I'm a good listener to all my students at school or or to people who come with help. I'm a good listener. Well, the minute that someone says I'm not listening, if I'm living in that identity, that's not my center, that's a projection. I'm pushing that out to the circumference. If I'm living on the edge there and that gets attacked or that gets robbed from me or someone says, oh no, you should see Ron. Ron is the best listener there is. I get flustered. So let's, let's up the stakes here. Let's up the stakes. I was just, I was just giving you guys a small example. You're the king and you wear a crown and someone takes the crown. If this was your image, your importance, your power, your security, your identity, if that crown was that for you and it gets taken, you were living on the edge of life. And when that gets taken, what are you doing? You're now dangling for help. But what prayer does, prayer brings us back to the center so that we are no longer identified by these things. We're identified by the God we're relating with in prayer. So I may ask, and I do ask, how in the world does David give up his throne? How does he take the crown off and let Absalom have it? Think about this. He's king, so he has a right. And this is what every advisor would have told David. Every advisor would have told him, you're the king. You have a right to fight right now. It's in your rights. It is in my rights. I should. That's how we think. Oh, and then people would have said, David, what do you mean? You're worried about the numbers of Absalom. You are the giant killer. You have the might to fight. If you drew your sword, the one you killed Goliath with, I guarantee, David, those, the half the people that are on the fence about who to follow, they will choose you when they see the giant killer sword coming into action. You have the might to fight. But David says, I don't care that I have the right and I don't care that I have the might. I am not going to fight. I am going to relinquish my crown. Because this is not what I'm clutching at. This is not what I'm grasping at. I have learned in prayer that I have a center. And in that center is where the presence of God dwells within me. And that's where I find my power and my identity. So the crown, it's just a child's plaything, to quote Toy Story, that I'm wearing on my head because this, you can take the crown, Absalom. You can take the throne. You can take my concubines, which he did. You can take all of it, 
but you can't take my center. You cannot touch my center. That's how David is able to take the crown off and walk away. And where is that center found? It is found when you are in prayer and on the run. There's another insight here. If you look at verse 5, now I will admit I'm undecided on how to interpret this. So I'm going to pose it to you, okay? In verse 5, I have for years until this very week, well, actually last week, for years until last week, I had just read this for what it says. I laid down and slept. I woke again for Yahweh sustained me. I mean, why not? Life is hard. You're under stress. It's hard to sleep. I can relate to that. So David's thanking God that, look, because I trusted in him, I was able to find sleep. Very, very, very adequate and legitimate interpretation. Um, every single commentary I read said that, except for one. And here's, here's the interesting one. This commentator says, wait a minute here. In Job chapter 14, verse 12, these three verbs, lay down, slept, and woke again, are used together. Only other place, these three are used together. And in Job, it refers to death. I lay down. Like when it says in Kings and Chronicles that a king died, it says he slept with his fathers. I lay down means that the psalmist is dying here. I lay down. I slept. Death. And if that's the interpretation, which by the way, Psalm 13 verse 3 Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. So it is consistent. If this is death, then when he says, I awoke again, this is a precursor to resurrection. This is God coming and delivering his prayer from the dead. Which will happen to all Christians because Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know. That's up to you. It's an interesting interpretation and it has a lot of validity. It just doesn't have the side of the majority. If that's the case, let's just take the first case. It's sleep. Well, great. When you're on the run, know that when you're in prayer and you find your center, you will be able to sleep again. Life is not always going to be full of adrenaline. Praise God. Your infatuation turns into a matured love, right? <laughs> that kind of analogy too. If it's death, then what we're seeing here is, yes, every time we choose to give up the throne, every time we choose to walk away and let Absalom have it, every time we're able to do that because we find our center, it's hard because it is a death to us. I'm dying to a piece of my identity. I'm dying to a piece of who I am. I'm dying to a piece of my security and importance. Yeah, that's hard. Anytime we lose control of something, it's suffering. In a sense, as a nation, we are all, as a people, we're all suffering right now. We may not be feeling pain, but we're suffering because we have no control. It's a sense of death for us. It's a crucifixion. There's loss. There's giving up. There's grief. And especially here. But, but, but. The reason we can give up the crown, the reason we can relinquish control and let 
God be the one who determines the outcome is because we know that in our death and every time we experience a death in God, we will be resurrected to newness of life. And I don't just mean in the future. Oh, that's nice, but I don't want to suffer all the until eternity happens. I mean right now. And I can tell you from experience that when I have suffered at the hands of people, when I feel like I'm in verse three and on the run and I've chosen not to cling and clutch to my rights or demonstrate my might. Yes, it's hard and it's hard to endure sometimes rumors or other things that are said or what is done to you. You want everything within you to do verse seven to them, but you know better. Somewhere down the road, that death becomes a resurrection. And your scars become strength. That's the Christian life, is that we die and rise over and over, season after season. That's what maturity looks like. So, we don't have to fight Absalom. We can go on the run and pray. Because that's it's in those moments when the crown is threatened, you realize, I've been living on the edge of life too long. I need to return to the center And that's where true life and power lies in the center. All right, so let's finish. Let's finish by looking at the literal image here of the center in verse three. David says, but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Glory you may remember is um, um, I just lost the Hebrew word. Sorry. We we use it so many times and never think to write it down. Um, uh, Glory. Oh, well. It means weight and substance. It's the actual like weight and substance of God. It's that which is you can't help but turn your head when you see it. Not Shekinah, no. Not that one. Um, it's like Kavot. Uh, yeah, I can't remember it at the moment. Um, but it, that glory, you are my glory. I love that. It wasn't the crown. People who wear crowns, the crown is their glory. And therefore you have to fight. You have to flex your muscles. You can't let Absalom have it. But see, here we're seeing the secret. David knew that God was his glory. And... God was his substance. He was his weight. But and in prayer, by coming to God as his glory, he also, the uh, it says, you are a shield about me. When God is our glory, when we center our lives in him in prayer, he becomes the shield around us. And this is the beautiful image. The shield becomes a shelter in the storm. At first, it feels like it's pounding on you and you're never going to get dry and you're never going to get out of it. But when we center ourselves in God in prayer, he becomes a shield around us. And now we get to watch. David got to watch Absalom without necessarily feeling like, oh, it's Absalom, I can't sleep. He got to say, let's see what God does. If if God wants me to come back to Jerusalem, I'll come back. Let's leave it all alone. Let's just watch how this plays out. What an amazing viewpoint in life. Because God has become a shield Shields often had emblems on them. They were a source of glory. It was a warrior's like signia, like, oh, there's that shield. That's David the giant killer. Yet now God has become a shield. God has become a shield. What has become your shield 
What have you been relying on? What have you been hiding behind? Because that's where we're living. And the only place where God is the shield is when in prayer, we're living in the center because that's where his shield is. It's in the center. But when we step out from around that and we want to say, no, look at my shield. And we want to parade something about ourselves, some strength, something we own or whatever. That's when we're going to get in trouble. That's when we're going to get in trouble. Um, you might remember in first Samuel chapter, uh, 17 verse 38. This is first Samuel 17 is when David was fighting Goliath. Do you remember what happened before he went out to fight Goliath? Saul wanted his name all over this kid. Saul wouldn't go out and fight Goliath. He's living on the edges of life. But David comes along and Saul's like, you're willing to fight him? Oh goody, here. And what Saul does is 1 Samuel 17, 38. Saul clothed David with his armor. What a snotty little fox that guy is. Oh, let's put my name on this kid as he goes out to fight. Coward. So he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested the armor. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, and then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. And his sling was in hand, and he went and faced the Philistine. I love this because the world is trying to adorn us with its armor. It's trying to tell you, this is how you should look. This is the part of yourself you should present. This is how to protect yourself. And so it continues to project us to the circumference of our life. And soon it's going to crumble and we're going to be on the desperate edge of our life wondering, should I hold on to my armor or not? Well, question, is it working for you? Because it doesn't seem like it. So David learns to let it go because he's found his center in God. God is his shield. And friends, this is the only shield we need. It's the only one that will completely surround us when many are my foes, when many are those who rise up against me, when many are those who say, of my soul, there's no hope for you. We need God's armor, not Saul's armor, not the armor of wealth or prestige or importance or whatever identity is or whatever image we're trying to project, not the armor of I'm a king or I'm I'm a good professional or I'm a great American or I'm a patriot or I'm a holy Christian or I'm a Bible knowledgeable person or I should be the one leading worship or none of these chips on our shoulders. Dressed in the armor of God, we can all let go of everything. We can relinquish the crown. We can disengage. We can be no longer attached because we can say, all right, I'm in God's armor. There's nothing more I need. And so Ephesians chapter 6 closes with telling us, look, put on the full armor of God and stand in the power of his might. Nothing will come against you. That's what Ephesians tells you. In the armor of God, stand. In the armor of God, stand. Stand, therefore, stand firm. Four times it tells us to stand. 
That's what we get when we're on the run because our armor wasn't working. But then we realize, wait, in prayer, we realize, wait, God is a shield about me. I must come back to the center of my being. I must trust in God, the spirit who dwells within me and be clothed in his armor. He's my identity. He's my security. He's my strength. And now I can stand and look out from this position at the storm raging around me. And then I can see what God's going to do. And I can walk into the new day. So friends, this can apply in so many different ways. Our sense of America can be your shield. Our, our aims for the, for the uh, elections in November can be your shield. The church you fellowship at can be your shield. Whatever you're portraying on social media, your stance on this issue or that issue, it can be your shield. Your seeking health in the midst of a pandemic can be your shield. Your diet can be your shield. The people you're seen with can be your shield. We must... It's okay to, of course, have things in life, but we must understand that our shield is God. We wear His armor and unless we do, we're going to be walking on the edge of life all the time and it's going to crumble. But in him, he's our shield. He's our center. He's our glory. This is where we stand. And this is where we will thrive no matter what happens. No matter what the news throws at us, the shield, boom, deflection, deflection, deflection. So let's not hold on to our crowns, but let's be people of prayer and praise who stand centered in the armor of God, regardless of the storm around. Father, we, we pray that you would draw us into yourself. Pull us back from where we've been running wild. Pull us back from that edge we've been dangling by two fingers on. Lift us up. And Lord, where we have surrendered and it feels like a death and it feels like a loss, I pray that you restore, that you show us what we are gaining by letting go, that by releasing our open hands are able to now receive everything you're pouring out. Teach us, Lord, train us to want nothing else but what your son has provided for us. I pray you clothe my brothers and sisters in your armor, that we would go in the security and identity you've given us. And so, dear church, as we now take communion, this is where we see where the armor is. This is where the battle is. Are we willing to, like Jesus, let go and give ourselves? Are we willing to take the path toward new life?